Hi, guys. It seemed louder over here. Thank you. Not that this is one of, it's not, I didn't mean that in a contest way, like, oh, come on, you can do better than that. I just, man, I heard a loud hello, so I responded to it. Um, I told you guys a minute ago, my name's Josh. I'm uh, one amongst uh, a team of men and women who help lead Fan City Church. Um, One of my primary gigs is this thing that I'm about to do now, which is sort of to teach through the Bible and the scriptures uh, on an ordinary Sunday. Here I am. So it's awesome to get to hang out with you guys. Thanks for being around and hanging out with us. In 2012, English comedian Russell Brand invited two members of the tiny yet once notorious Westboro Baptist Church, the picket sign guys, to be guests on his talk show. And the ensuing interview was as squirm-inducing and entertaining as one might predict. But in it, Russell Brand, a famous enthusiast of several Eastern spiritualities, argued that the small cult of the Westboro Baptist Church was perhaps misrepresenting Jesus, um, which is an ordinary thing to say. But specifically, Russell said this, and I quote, "Uh, I just feel from what I've read of Jesus and what I've had explained to me that his main message was definitely tolerance and love and truth and beauty and acceptance. And this struck me at the time because though a case could certainly be made that Jesus had things to say on each of those topics, I couldn't help but imagine that Mr. Brand might be disappointed to learn some of the more divisive teachings of Jesus. Um, Jesus also had a lot to say about these ideas of light and darkness. Uh, He used metaphors like there are sheep and there are goats. And he talked about this concept called sin, and he talked about evil, and he even talked about judgment. But of course, uh, Russell Brand is hardly alone. Post-Christian culture, which is a moment that we're in now, uh, certainly has a not-so-subtle aversion to Christianity, or what I might describe as Christendom. But I dare say that you'd be hard-pressed to find many who have an actual problem with Jesus himself as a historical figure, as a person. But sometimes I think if people knew more about Jesus, maybe they would have a problem with him after all. And this got me thinking about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of all people. And here's why. Though the world obviously continues to host a collection of unabashed racists and hateful people, most ordinary human beings have good things to say about Dr. Martin Luther King. Because we, we realize, of course, he's an imperfect man, but he is, and rightly, I would argue, remembered mostly for good. Um, I became particularly fascinated with Dr. King around the same time I became fascinated and compelled by the ethic for Christian pacifism, which was many years ago. And when you read Dr. King's writing and you listen to his sermons and uh, his speeches, it becomes abundantly clear that nonviolence and pacifism were brazenly at the forefront, forefront of his teaching and his practice. Dr. King believed in and argued for the rejection of all violence, personal violence, military violence, police violence. He believed that disciples of Jesus in particular were to love their enemies and turn the other cheek and never repay evil with evil. And if you think that he applied this only to his activism, to his civil rights movement, you'd be mistaken. In fact, Dr. King was famously criticized by folks within his own camp for a very public condemnation of the Vietnam War. And yet today, all of the ideas about pacifism remain tremendously unpopular. Uh, But Dr. King himself is anything but, which is interesting. Many conveniently overlook what may have been one of his most 
one of the most important dimensions of his work, and they celebrate him all the same. But even without broaching the topic of nonviolence, you could actually go a bit further with Dr. King's reputation to make this point even more. Uh, I read this week that the professor of religious studies and director of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University said of Martin Luther King, and I quote, many labels were attached to him during his lifetime. He was called a civil rights activist. He was called a social activist. He was called a social change agent, a world figure. But I think he thought of himself first and foremost as a preacher and a Christian pastor. Many today who hold little more than contempt for Christianity, for the church, and even for Christians themselves would still celebrate the life and work of Dr. King, conveniently overlooking the fact that he happened to be and perhaps understood himself first and foremost as a Baptist pastor of all things. And while I obviously didn't know Dr. King personally, it seems evident from his words and from his actions that maybe he'd be surprised that he had been largely overlooked or even forgotten as a preacher or as a pacifist. Similarly, I think Jesus is an even more controversial figure with an even more divisive way of life who has also been divorced from some of the very things that he himself emphasized. And so the number of people today who want a Jesus uh, without a concept of church or without the Bible or without systems of discipline and objective morality, a right and a wrong way of life and without ethics, um, the, the numbers seem staggering. It's a very popular way to think of Jesus of Nazareth. But I believe personally that if Jesus were presented with an idea of following him without a Bible, without a church, even a formal church, without systems and discipline and objective morality and ethics, maybe he would be a tad baffled. Maybe he would think, follow me without the scriptures? How? How can you possibly do that? Follow me without the community of God's people? How? How will that be done? Without a specific way of life? How? For some, the idea that Jesus might ask much of those who would follow him, you know, aside from just warm fuzzies and uh, a loosely held intellectual belief in your mind that, yeah, Jesus is a dude and God's real and whatever that means, that seems overbearing. That seems like too much to ask. But you actually don't have to wade far into the Gospels before you find a Jesus who presents to his would-be followers a way of life, not just an intellectual belief, not just a premise that you hold in your heart personally, but a way of life. So with that in mind, will you guys open your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 6? Luke chapter 6. I'm fighting the urge to cough all the time. It makes it worse? You make it worse. You tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't make it worse. I was just trying to get everyone to laugh at me and like me, and it worked. They did. Thank you for participating in that. Uh, at Van City, uh, we talk quite a bit about apprenticing Jesus. You'll hear us go on about it a lot. And there's a good reason. You know, today the term most used to describe folks who follow Jesus is probably Christian, or, or perhaps the slightly less loaded and popular term, Jesus follower. And those are fine. But the term that the New Testament prefers in, the, uh, in Greek for those who follow Jesus is actually the word mathetes. 
It's what most of your Bibles translate as disciple. And disciple is also fine. It's a great word. But it isn't exactly a word that enjoys a tremendous amount of use outside of a churchy context, right? So there is uh, another translation of the word methetes that we think does sum up the concept quite nicely and for which we do have an everyday paradigm as well. And that word is apprentice. Not unlike one might apprentice a tattoo artist or an electrician or a kung fu master, I say all the time. Disciples of Jesus organize the entirety of their lives under the teaching and the guidance of a master teacher. For us, the master teacher is Jesus of Nazareth. So we're currently nearing the conclusion of a teaching series and a set of practices specifically designed to guide each of us along the journey of discovering our identity and our calling. So we've talked about the way that each of us have been uniquely designed by God uh, over and against the lies that we tend to believe about ourselves. We talked about this thing called the Enneagram, this ancient uh, tool for spiritual formation and um, what now has been a bit abused as a personality test, but actually can be helpful in uncovering something called your shadow side. We talked about your vocation, your work in the world, and how that may or may not be your job, and maybe it's a little bit of both. And we've been working this out in our communities with conversations and practices having to do with your season of life, your unique wiring, uh, your habits. But an enormous overarching dimension of identity and calling is something called spiritual formation. And according to Jesus himself, there is a goal of your apprenticeship. So with all that said, let's finally read Luke chapter 6. If you guys are there, look down at verse 39. It says, he also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? One of Jesus' more straightforward parables. And he goes on, for the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Disciples of Jesus are training to be like their teacher. This is a process that we call spiritual formation, the process by which you are formed to better resemble your master and your teacher all the time. But listen, there's something you should know about your journey to become like Jesus, and that is that it is a life of counterformation, meaning to become like Jesus means working against the way that you are being formed otherwise. Because contrary to popular belief, spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. It's a universally human concept. All of us are being formed bit by bit over time by the stories that we believe um, about ourselves, about the world around us. We're being formed by our daily and weekly habits and our routines. We're being formed by the relationships that we maintain, all within the environment in which we live over time and through the experiences of our lives. And we unpacked this in detail last week. If you missed it, go back and listen to the podcast. But the point is that to be formed this way requires almost nothing on your part. It requires very little. Simply live your life, and some variation of each of these dimensions will shape you. A disciple of Jesus, however, realizes that they are being formed by things other than their teacher, to be clear. None of these are Jesus. They might be good or bad, maybe a little bit of both, but they aren't the way of Jesus per se. So they realize that, and they set out to do counterformation. So look at this chart for a, a, a moment and remember it as innate and inevitable. This is happening whether you like it or not. 
You are being formed by the stories that you believe. There are stories that you believe, and they are having an effect on you. There are habits in which you indulge, relationships that you maintain, an environment in which you live, and on down the list. And now consider for a moment the way of Jesus as counterformation. And remember this, if one method of formation must win out over the other one, it would have to be the strongest one. And of course, we know this already. We, we see this well represented in fiction, the, the trope of a hero who has to take on a new way of life, a new training, uh, usually involves that hero giving up everything to learn some new precious thing, and it takes time. So, you know, to become the Batman, Bruce Wayne doesn't just sign up for an evening karate class on the side while he's doing his other stuff. He ascends the Himalayan mountains and he seeks out the fortress of the League of Shadows. He adopts a new way of life. Luke, you know, he doesn't read a book for a little while every morning and call it good. He actually flies to the Dagobah system to find Yoda and to apprentice under a master teacher. He adopts a new way of life. Or, you know, in Kill Bill, if you've seen the film, The Bride, she doesn't listen to a TED talk by Pai Mei and be like, I think I've got it. That's basically it. She actually lives in his temple uh, for weeks at a time and she beats her knuckles bloody in Kung Fu training. She adopts a new way of life. My point is that when we think of our training in an entirely new way of life, why, I wonder, do we assume it will require less to become like Jesus than to, say, learn a martial art or learn a new vocation or something like that? Because you are already being formed by your life rhythm and by the world unfolding around you, but you can work against it. And here's how. For each point on the chart of unintentional spiritual formation, there is a counterpoint of intentional spiritual formation. In order to counteract the stories that you believe, the disciple of Jesus first seeks out teaching. And it's true that, listen to me on this, a transformation to become like Jesus, it requires much more than just information, meaning you can't just read a book and say like, I think I've got it, I'll be like Jesus now. Uh, but it doesn't require less than information. Information is absolutely a part of it. Teaching can really be an incredibly powerful weapon in the work of counterformation. The best sort of teaching does more than simply inform you of the ways in which you're right or wrong or, or things about the world. The best teaching permeates your mind with a vision of what it means to have what Jesus called the life that is truly life. It undermines the stories that you believe because it gives you something better. The best teaching exposes the truth as something beautiful, and it exposes the lies that you believe for what they are, heinous and destructive. And in theory, the best teaching takes aim at, at the mind, but not just the mind, that sort of intangible dimension of the mind that we call the imagination. And this could be sermons, you know, what you're hearing right now. It could also include like a Bible study with your friends or reading the scriptures every morning with your coffee or reading theologians and commentators or just reading books in general. All this falls under the umbrella of teaching. In Romans 12, Paul talks about this by saying this, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One way in which you are transformed happens in your mind. But getting the right ideas into your mind alone is only the beginning of that process. Knowing something is not the same as doing something. And so next in the list of counterformational tools is practice. 
So Jesus' famous collection of teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, what we've been doing for months when we're not in a new practice, it begins and it ends with this idea of practice. Jesus specifically says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Later, one New Testament author will put it this way. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Jesus and his earliest disciples presuppose that this radical way of life will require a lifetime of practice within the community of God's people, not by yourself, because you can't do it by yourself. More on that in a bit. So to return to my film analogies from a few minutes ago, think of, you know, Luke attempting to lift a crashed X-wing with the force, or think of Bruce Wayne in like a stealth training exercise with the League of Shadows, or Pai Mei teaching the bride how to do this thing where you punch through wood at a finger's length. You see me doing it? I can't actually do it, but it looks like that. Um, all of them in the films in which these events transpired, they're practicing. They don't just, hey, hide, <laughs> be a ninja, hide, or lift this thing up, or punch through this wood. They practice, and it takes quite a bit. There's a very specific reason that we at Van City take on a new set of spiritual disciplines and new principles of emotional health in our communities every few months. This is how we approach our discipleship to Jesus. We believe one doesn't just try to be like Jesus and do it. Instead, you train to be like Jesus. Because if you're going on willpower alone, which is the trying method, willpower will really only carry you so far. Sometimes it's effective, but ultimately not so much. Ordinarily, if it's willpower versus, say, a porn habit, or willpower versus anxiety, or willpower versus gossip, or what have you, whatever your thing is, willpower will eventually get bludgeoned to death. That's how it works. So a friend of mine defines a spiritual discipline as this. This is a helpful way of thinking it, thinking about it. A habit or practice based on the life of Jesus that over time makes it possible for us to do what we cannot currently do through direct effort. Let me read that one more time. A spiritual discipline is a habit or practice based on the life of Jesus that over time makes it possible for us to do what we cannot currently do through direct effort. So imagine the way of Jesus as akin to, you know, mastering the piano or becoming a black belt or learning a second language, whatever it might be. To master any of those things requires training and it requires practice. So if you want to become the type of people for whom everything you read in the Sermon on the Mount is not just intimidating and, oh my gosh, that's a high bar, that's so much to ask, but it's actually a possible way of living, you have to practice those things. For most of us, simply saying something like, just don't worry, go out there tomorrow and don't worry, or don't lust, knock it off with the lust, will you? or you know, uh, whatever it might be. Don't fret, don't have anxiety, don't struggle with whatever your thing is. It's kind of the same thing as like pointing to a piano and telling my four-year-old son, play Mozart. Just try really hard to play Mozart. It's not that he can't forever, like he'll never, no matter what, be able to play Mozart. It's not that he can't in perpetuity, it's that he can't yet. He hasn't even tried or practiced or learned anything. If he tried now, he would obviously fail. I assume he would just bang his fists like this up and down on the keys. But 
if he were to practice daily for years as he grows and becomes older, he could, in theory, become the type of person to not only play uh, Mozart, but to master playing Mozart through practice, through training. Because knowing something is not the same thing as doing it, but doing it is not the same thing as wanting to do it. So the beauty of the practices of the spiritual disciplines of Jesus is that they're aimed at the mind and the imagination, much like teaching, but they get there a different way by way of your heart because they get at the things that you love. Nothing shapes what you love more than your habits, your routines, the things that you do on a regular basis. So by daily practicing the way of Jesus over and over again, day after day, year after year, the will becomes reformed and it gets stronger over time and your habits and your loves are rewired And we actually know this on a neurological level. Uh, Habits, the things that you do over and over again, forge new neural pathways in your mind, and and it makes things easier. It makes them more natural. It makes them more likely to recur in your life rhythm. And by doing the things of Jesus on a regular basis, forging new neural pathways, your love for Jesus himself begins to deepen. What's now impossible for you, or at least very hard for you, eventually becomes second nature. That's the idea anyway. Third in counterformation is this idea of community, something we also talk about quite a bit. Now, what's the difference between relationships in the previous unintentional paradigm and community? Relationships, you often sort of self-select based on preference. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But community, on the other hand, kind of in the context of the scriptures and disciples of Jesus, it really just means the family of God all around you at any given time, the people in your life, co-disciples of Jesus. It could be a group of peers and close friends, uh, and that's awesome. That's great. Or it could be a collection of folks uh, that you went through basics class together or you don't know well at all or that you've, you know, you've happened into a new church and there's this new group of people. You don't know them well, now they're going to be your community. It could be the people all around you in this whole room, Van City Church uh, as a whole. Some of them will inevitably be familiar and maybe more over time and others of them less so. And I cannot say this enough. I've already mentioned it this evening, I believe, but you can't follow Jesus by yourself. Jesus himself did not live in isolation. Uh, his apprentices did not live in isolation. And for 2,000 years, they've, they've written and lived extensively in the arena of community. You follow Jesus in the context of community. If you read the letters of the New Testament, they don't actually say, like, make sure you don't try to go off and do this by yourself. Live in a community. They just presuppose that that's the only way this is done. So they're always written to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth, and on and on down the list. Now, community is the context in which that change that we're talking about actually takes place. And there's a couple of reasons. One is because that's where exposure happens and that's where encouragement happens. And they happen uniquely in the context of community. So when you live in a close community, it doesn't have to just be a church community. It could be a close friendship. Uh, It could be your marriage. That's a community, believe it or not. It acts as something of like a strong set of hands that are like wringing out the sponge of your personality, meaning what's actually inside of you will get squeezed out eventually. This is why single people who love to imagine themselves as awesome get married and suddenly realize there is someone in the world that takes great issue with them all the time. Or or think of folks who have always lived alone and then they take up with roommates for the first time and they're baffled that everyone wants to kill them. You know, it's not that they've suddenly become intolerable. It's just that no one was around before to expose how intolerable they've always been. Um, Community, it brings out the best and the worst in you. 
That's the exposure dynamic. But in a healthy community, there's also encouragement. So where, where the family of God sees the good in you, they see the way God has uniquely wired you, and they call that out into the open. They celebrate that with you. They see the person that you can be, the person that you are becoming, that you will become, and they partner with God in helping you walk the narrow road of discipleship with Jesus. Now, living this way is obviously more difficult than not living this way. Make absolutely no pretense about it. If you're looking for which one's easier, not community is way easier than living in community. But we believe that community is better, much better. Now, and I, think, I feel like I can say this because I've been at it for years. Um, it's often brutal. It's often frustrating. It can be inconvenient or awkward. But honestly, it's also fun. It's also beautiful. It's also essential to the life of a disciple of Jesus. And I learned this in particular uh, through two very specific ways over the last few years. One of them was really good, and one of them was really bad. Um, so prior to doing the church thing and staying in one place, I lived in a van. I traveled all around playing music for most months of the year, and I did that for like more than a decade. During that time, most of us were like severely emotionally unhealthy, immature to the umpteenth degree. So I had no idea. But, you know, I lived in a van with people, and I had no idea what it meant to live in community with people. And then years later, years later when I actually begun the community thing proper, giving it, giving it a go, was also the time that I had my first kid. And I was absolutely staggered by the beauty of experiencing such a thing in the context of community. Because there were other people that were not related to me, so they didn't have to be there. And they chose me and my wife and my son. And they celebrated with us, and they walked with us, and they helped us. And some of them were my close friends. Some of them I had known for years, and others weren't at all. Some of them were brand new to me, and they were right there alongside the people I had known for years. Um, shortly thereafter, really shortly thereafter, actually, my dad died, and the people that I thought of as my community were right there again. They grieved with me. They cared for my family and I. They, they helped us make ends meet and pull ourselves back together. They loved us. And community is the only way to live out your discipleship, the good, the bad, and the not so easy. It is more difficult, but it, also, it is also much better. In his book, Slow Church, Christopher Smith writes this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Now, keeping with our paradigm that we're unpacking here, in the place of our environment uh, is the Holy Spirit. Now, the goal for disciples of Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connectedness to the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize that to accomplish such a thing is, you know, shall we say, a bit of a challenge. It's hard. In fact, when I just said that, most of you were like, what? You can do that? And that's absolutely okay. Stay with me for just a second. Remember everything that I've just said about practice and training. Maintained awareness of and connectedness to the Holy Spirit is no different than all the other practices of Jesus. It actually requires a tremendous amount of practice, and you get better a little bit, and you take a step back, and you go forward again. That's how it works. So the idea is that more than the subculture to which you belong, or more than your city, more than your home, your family, uh, your classroom, your workplace, the digital world, what whatever it might be, more than all of these things, 
The spirit of Jesus will become your environment, the world in which you live, so to speak, your constant state of being. And in that constant state of connectedness to to God, to the Father, you will become changed. And that's the beauty and the relief in all this. In your journey of counterformation, please listen to me, God's spirit will do the heavy lifting for you. You don't have to do it by yourself. But listen to me on this. There is a bit of a tension here. You do have a part to play. Absolutely. There is work for you to do. You will not simply sort of sit back and be zapped by God with this sanctifying bolt and find that you have suddenly become like Jesus. So, you know, the, what's that expression, let go and let God thing? Don't do that. Don't do that at all. Um, there's, there's absolutely stuff for you to do. There's teaching, there's practice, there's community. You have work to do, but God has much more work to do, and he will do it. In fact, the scriptures are actually replete with God's promise that he who's began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So all of this is something that is going to happen slowly over time, if you look at the bottom of the chart there. It's a hard pill to swallow in the frenetic kind of rapid pace of our modern lives, but formation takes time. It takes a really, really long time. Earlier this week, I was studying for this teaching, and I reread this sobering line that kind of struck me, and I had to just sit back and read it again. The truth about significant soul transformation is this. Change is possible, but it's harder than we want, and it takes longer than we expect. You can't, you know, microwave human character. There's no Amazon Prime or Prime Now, which I learned this week. Do you guys know what Amazon Prime Now is? It's like uh, progressing us one more step toward the world of WALL-E. If you've seen the Pixar film WALL-E, where we're all just, you know, boneless blobs that fly around in chairs. It's a great science fiction film. Check it out sometimes. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> uh, anyway, where was... Sorry, I have a deficit of attention. Uh, Well, Prime Now. Thank you, Bennett. Prime Now. Um, Amazon Prime allows you to have something shipped to your door within two business days. Uh, Prime Now is within the hour, I believe. And the the factory warehouse is actually shockingly stocked, you know? One evening, I was about to watch um, uh, this particular film, which if you know, is called Flight of the Navigator. It's not a a tremendously popular film. Thanks. Yes, I didn't make it, but thank you. Um, And I was like, oh, I don't actually have a Blu-ray copy of this movie. I wonder if it's on Prime now. It was. If I ordered it in an hour, some guy would be like, here's that movie that you needed for the evening. Uh, Apparently, they've moved it into the Vancouver area, but it stops right here. Is that right, Patrick? It stops, is that right? It stops like at Compass Church and doesn't extend to the other side of the church, or am I doing it the other way around? The other way around, right. The point is, it's coming to your neighborhood and it's gonna make you awful and everything. I didn't buy the movie, by the way. I held true. I was like, no, I'll wait two days. Thank you very much. Uh, anyway, uh, none of that was in my notes. Amazon Prime now, it's a thing. So you can't do that with your character is the point that I was getting at. Instead, your character grows a lot more like a tree is the easy analogy. You know, it's very slow, um, but it's a strong process. And it's persistent, you know, when, it's, when you actually care for that process. And not unlike Luke Skywalker or Bruce Wayne or The Bride, you actually will reap what you sow in terms of investment. I know this sounds a little strange, but if you think about it, why are some young disciples of Jesus, I'm sure you know them, more healthy and more mature than some very old disciples 
of Jesus. Or why in your life, I'm sure you've met very new disciples of Jesus who seem further along than other disciples of Jesus who have been at it for years. And one answer could be, in some sense, you often get what you put in. Um, This is precisely why last week's practice, if you've already done it, was an audit of your habits and your routines so that you can see how you're spending your time. This is why I had you guys share your phone usage data uh, uh, on community night. Spoiler alert, if you haven't got to that one yet, you will. Um, So here's an example. I'm a movie person. I talk about it a lot. Apparently, I was ordering, you know, a movie on Amazon Prime now, but didn't. Uh, I'm a movie person, not a TV person. I think the TV series form is inherently inferior to the feature film form, but that's like a whole other teaching and and probably not one you would do at a church. Um, So with maybe one exception a year, I don't know, or less than that, I'll almost never watch, you know, whatever the latest Netflix or Hulu series might be uh, personally. So aside from my gripes with the form itself, one primary reason that I don't is because of time investment, you know, good grief for even the more compact series. Sometimes people are like, you've got to try this one. And I'll look at the number of episodes and crunch the numbers. For me, it takes a while. You probably do it instantaneously. Uh, It's like 10 hours to watch a single season of some show. And in most cases, it's more like 20 or something like that. And I I really do have such a tremendously high value for art and fiction and storytelling. But I sometimes feel like I'm fighting for every half hour in my day, and I don't want to spend 20 of them on some show. Um, And I wish that I could tell you that all that time that I'm saving by not watching TV that I actually put into the practice of Jesus. But the truth is that I have it, Um, very few of them, actually. And that's, that's my point. I'm not saying that if you watch a TV series, you're failing as a disciple of Jesus. What I am saying, and I'm sure most of you guys would actually agree with me, is that if spiritual formation does take time, most of us could probably make better use of it, right? Yeah, Is it just, it's probably just me or I'm chief among them, but I think most of us could make better use of it. So the process of formation unfolds over a long period of time and it happens through the hard knocks of life or through trials, through suffering. And you, you don't have to follow Jesus to understand that life is replete with suffering. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, the most difficult, tragic, painful things of life can become a catalyst for spiritual formation. The classic text on this comes from James 1, where he writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Throughout the story of the scriptures, the authors make the point over and over again that often in the worst scenarios of our lives, we grow and mature the most. And now, to be clear, it's not God who designs or plans or ordains or predetermines your suffering or the tragedy in your life. Um, I I believe that God hates it just as much as you do, in fact, quite, quite a bit more. But God can and will use it for good, and he will use it to fast track your maturity if you allow him to. And the interesting thing is that our Western uh, culture is kind of built to spare us any and all measure of pain whenever possible. You know, you, you live a life designed by like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, you're entitled to happiness at all times. Imagining that any hardship takes us away from our proper entitled seat of ongoing interrupted, uninterrupted bliss is kind of what we all do innately by design. And because of this, Many of us don't know how to confront suffering when it actually arrives. 
Uh, we don't know how to face cancer or death or divorce or unemployment or abuse or whatever it might be. And so when it does happen, you end up blaming God for what you presume to be a negligent deviation from your deserved life of consistent happiness all the time. And the best that culture can do is to step in and offer a distraction. They can say, oh, well, here's some food, and here's some more stuff, and here's travel, and here's entertainment, and here's your little phone, and here's medicine, here's more information. And there comes a point when all of that is simply not enough. And it's the very times of pain from which we often run that stand to act as an agent of intense transformation on our journey to become like Jesus. So it can be something to grieve, something to lament absolutely right alongside with God, but something to lean into, so to speak, in order to find what's there for your transformation, for your maturity. Now, before we end tonight, this is what I'm getting at. How do you change to be like Jesus? I would argue that it happens through teaching, through practice, the spiritual disciplines, through the community of God's people, all within the environment of the Holy Spirit. And all of that takes place over the course of time, a very long time, and it happens through suffering or through the hard knocks of life. This is essential in the quest to discover your identity and calling. Just last week, uh, we did the practice about auditing your habit. This week, the practice is dedicated to replacing old habits with new habits and to do so with specificity and intentionality. So if your community's rhythm is a bit wonky from the holidays, don't worry about it. You actually have until January to finish out the practice. So just take your time and do what works for you and your family. The next time your community meets and you're at this point in the practices, you'll head to practicingtheway.org and you'll set out to identify those habits that were revealed by the audit. If you haven't done it, you will get there. And that you identify the ones that you think may be shaping you for the worse, and then you deliberately replace them with spiritual disciplines. Sometimes uh, in spiritual transformation, spiritual formation literature, you'll read about things called upstream and downstream disciplines. Based on your wiring and your personality, some things come more easily and more naturally than others. So, for example, for the quiet, melancholy, loner type, the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, which is a great challenge for many of us, is actually a downstream practice. That's pretty easy to sit alone by yourself in the quiet. In fact, that sounds quite nice. Um, But then there's other practices like community, being around other people and getting into each other's stuff with other people, or or the, the discipline of worship, singing songs together and celebration with everyone else. For them, for the quiet, loner, melancholy type, that's an upstream discipline. That goes against the wiring of your personality. It takes really hard work. And that's important because you actually need to balance your practices with both things. So when you embark on the quest to swap habits, I would recommend choosing one upstream discipline for every downstream discipline. For every discipline that like comes naturally, and hey, that sounds fun, I can do that one all day, choose a upstream discipline. Oh, that one's going to be a challenge. That one's going to take work on my part. Because the upstream work will actually counter the ways in which you are immature and the ways in which you are sort of in, uh, out of shape, so to speak, spiritually. While the downstream work will be encouraging. It'll be life-giving. It'll make you feel like, hey, this one's working. I like this one. So look at your habits. Look at what they are doing to you and then make changes to your life. It's really that simple. To end tonight, I want us to remember a really strange yet sobering thought at the heart of this entire conversation about spiritual formation and discovering your identity and calling. And it is this, Christ-likeness, the idea of being like Jesus, is not natural. Yes, it is entirely possible to become transformed, 
But it isn't natural, and it isn't easy. The truth for all of us is that this will take hard work, and it will take a great amount of time, and it is in, it's unnatural for us. It goes against the ways in which we are wired and the way that the world is assaulting us on all sides, and that's okay. My guess is that we've all had different experiences with our first year of the practices, taking on new sets of spiritual disciplines in our communities. Maybe some of you have actually experienced what feels like quantifiable change in your life from one or two of them or all of them. Well done, that's awesome. Maybe others of you feel as though you're putting in the work, you're trying, but you're not sure that you feel terribly different at all, and that's okay. That's absolutely okay. Remember the process can be slow, like a tree. Remember the tree thing? It often works itself out in ways that you don't realize in the moment, but the key is to keep at it, keep going. Others of you, I realize, have yet to begin. You haven't really given it a fair shot at all. Maybe you're actually in a community and you haven't given it a fair shot at all. You haven't really taken on the practices. Or maybe you're new, you just walked in, you've yet to get into a community for one reason or another, that's totally okay. But to you guys, I would say this, it's really not too late. Uh, young or old, or whether you're familiar with Jesus or completely new to him, whether you're like the community savant and you love it and you always show up having done the practices, or whether you're like the notorious flake and you're only there half the time and you're always like, nope, didn't do them, you can still take on the practices of Jesus beginning this week, beginning now in your life. Maybe you feel like me and you're like fighting for every half hour of your life. Uh, for you, maybe it's the case that you just can't imagine taking on one more thing in the already chaotic season of your life. But listen to me on this. If you want to follow Jesus, then following Jesus is not another thing. It is the thing in your life. And if that's the case, then there will be sacrifice, sometimes painfully so, so sometimes with a great degree of difficulty and adjustment. And packed schedule or not, how you do and do not spend your time is still up to you. You make that decision every single day and every single week. You are spending your time on something inevitably, and when you do, you are choosing that thing over and against other things. Taking on a new way of life may mean reorienting your calendar or your schedule or your habits or even your hobbies and relationships and the way that you work. But if there's one thing I can communicate with horrifying clarity this evening, let it be this. If you would like to follow Jesus, it will require much more than songs and a sermon on the weekend. It will require all of you. And it won't be easy, but it will be better. And you won't make the journey alone. Remember that. Let all of us walk the narrow road as a family, practicing the way of Jesus together. And with that in mind, if you guys don't mind, let's pray 